Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Thursday, March the 23rd, um, just a week out from, you know, one of your favorite holidays of the year. How is your, uh, how is your St. Patrick's Day? Ah, uh, it is my favorite weekend of the year. It's not, not one of, number one with a bullet, Ricky. It was a wonderful weekend. Hope everyone enjoyed their own Patty's Day, or we may have celebrated but Ricky, it's always good to to catch you fresh off your cross country travels. No sooner do you get back than you have jury duty. I so sh- <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. What's that? How's that been so far? Well, I, I think the funny thing is just like becoming an adult is constantly looking at time frames, being like, once I get to this week, then I'm not going to have anything, and then yep. all of a sudden. You have jury duty and you think it's going to be like the three other times that you've been called for jury duty where you show up and they dismiss you before you even talk to anybody. And then all of a sudden you're in a courtroom and they're like, hey, you're on this jury. And the trial is <laughs> about two weeks long. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I texted you. I was like, I didn't I really never thought about this actually happening that I would that I'd be placed on a trial. So it's been it is been interesting so far they're just in the very early stages of like selecting a jury so i didn't have to go in today which is which is nice but um yeah i'll I'll keep i'll keep you updated as as far as i am allowed to um i think it's the whole process is illuminating um you know you, you get the thing in the mail it says jury duty your civic obligation and next to voting, this is this is what it is. Um, and it's not something I've ever really considered having to do, which is, uh, you know, shame on me, perhaps. Well, well, I mean, you're clearly such an ideal juror that they just booked you right away. And they were like, all right, you can take off. We, we'll book the right. Re- we got to get the rest of the fill out the, the other 11 people on the panel. But we got one. But honestly, you are you are the type of people that we want on on juries. And so. I think while you're not going to be able to tell us about the trial or like the the details of it, I, I I will be very curious to continue to hear your perspective on the process. For me, I I have an interesting jury story for you actually. So I've been three times too, I think, and the first two times I didn't get through like the initial vetting process of. The first time I didn't get called at all. I just sat in that room, like watched the video, and then they were like, "All right, we don't, we don't need you." And then the second time I got into the court, and they asked questions, and then they like dismissed me for whatever reason. Third time, Ricky got through all the questions, got up, talked to the judge. Judge was like, "Can you? Do you think you can be fair and impartial on this?" I don't know if you had to go through the same experience yeah. this week, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I, I think that I can." And they were like, "Great." Pat sat me down. I was jury juror number one. I was seated in in the box. Juror and Ricky like. For me, you know, you go in and you're like kind of dreading it, even though I like this stuff. You're you're like, I have other always there are other things to do. You you had planned to do other things that day, later that week. But then so I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want But then when I got sad, I was like, oh, I'm actually really into this. Like this is going to be a really cool experience. And then, as you probably know, Ricky and our listeners probably know that through our jury selection process, both sides get the ability to like challenge jurors off for any reason and so like without without even having to say a reason and so once they sat the whole jury the lawyers went up and talked to the judge and the judge was like juror number one you're dismissed one of the one of the lawyers challenged me off the jury <laughs> oh interesting uh, okay so i didn't realize that that part happens after they've seated the entire jury because so far i went into the courtroom spoke to the judge but both of the lawyers were there Yep. And then is it the judge that says, okay, you can be a juror or who's the first, who like first approved me? Cause they sent me out of the room, called me back in and said, you're a juror. And I was like, okay. So you had to get through like the initial questioning, which would say that like, you know, on the surface, 
you wouldn't have any biases. And both lawyers had to kind of say, like, look, there's no real objective reason why we would have a problem with him sitting on this jury. Either like we don't think he's going to be biased against, you know, for the government or uh, for the client, whatever. And then the judge will kind of follow up and just ensure that you know what you're getting into, kind of check that box, make sure you're not being biased. And then at that point, the lawyers will have the ability to challenge people off without cause. So like there's there's right now you're at a point where like there's an objective agreement that you could be a, a, a fair and impartial juror. But for any reason, well, not any reason, because of Supreme Court decisions, they couldn't challenge you off because of your gender or your race or like your you know sexual orientation or those sorts of things. But if they just felt like for whatever reason, a you know 34 year old man would be more in favor of the government or in this case, more in favor of the defendant, they could just be like, no, we don't want him on the jury. So I was like, when they kicked me out, I was like, oh, interesting. Like I definitely thought as I was going home, I was like, and I do think I know which side challenged me off. And I was like, huh, that's interesting that they thought I was going to be biased in favor of, of this side. Maybe they've been listening to the podcast. <laughs> that predated the the podcast but now we're yeah i don't think they that rarely do they want lawyers sitting on um juries understandably so and so i don't think i'm ever gonna have the chance to sit on a jury so i'm like a little little bit jealous of you you know you know that's interesting because i i was chatting with dan about this our other friend who who is a lawyer although in sort of a different realm of the legal sphere in his opinion was that they might want lawyers just like not who's who's like uh specialty could be involved in the case kind of thing like somebody who has an understanding of the law and obviously you would have that in in spades but then may not be may not specifically like form an opinion on how they would tr- how they would argue the case or like you know whether or not it meets certain criteria i think uh i don't know but I think Who knows? Like maybe I'll hold out hope that that someday will come along and I'll get to sit there too. But I, I am I'm going to be really interested in hearing your experience on there, and we'll work the podcast around your schedule between uh, jury duty and work and everything else you have going on. I love it. All right. Well, jury duty aside, that's not the only thing we are uh, are chatting about. What uh, what's on the docket for this week? Yeah. Three pretty different, but pretty monumental things this week. This week marked the 20th anniversary of the United States invasion of Iraq. Interesting that I use that term of phrasing. The war at the beginning of the war in Iraq, that would be a different way to say it. So we're going to talk about reflections on that. Less historical, although obviously we won't be able to help ourselves, I'm sure, and there'll be some lots of history intertwined, but it's more like a personal reflections on that time in our lives and in the country's history. We're also going to be talking about what seems we've been waiting all week for the other shooter drop in what will be a historic indictment and arrest of a former president, President Trump in New York. And finally, what was a monumental visit of the president of China, Xi Jinping, visited President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, this past week, which was was another really really significant global event for a lot of reasons. So three three like I said different but pretty weighty topics that um, we'll hope to address in this episode. But Ricky, 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 I saw you almost forgot. You almost forgot that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking and see this is why we say it in every episode cuz there are people out there that might have forgotten. Uh, the people over at uh, Cannon Hill Woodworking have been building high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, after a tough winter, although it wasn't that tough here in New England this year, but tough in other parts of the country, what did the tree say to spring? I got nothing. What a relief. <laughs> wow. You know, I had been going with the leaf saying you have <laughs> weeks on weeks, and I've always been wrong. I didn't even I didn't even try and say it this time. Snuck, snuck it in there, right? I was like, he's not gonna guess leaves four weeks in a row. And I got I got him again. All right, let's get let's get into it. So 
So on March 20th, 2003, the United States began its invasion um, of Iraq, right? So the, the shock and awe campaign began. And so I guess instead of like getting too much into the details of the conflict itself, I wanted to give like a, a like a couple of uh stats or facts about the history basically like if you read about it in in a history book which i think it will in some sense be like more or less a footnote and not this like massive event um what might you read so right invasion begins march 20th 2003 um obviously the united states comes with a kind of a ragtag coalition i think it's like poland australia uh, the United Kingdom are sort of part of it, but the brunt of the force is is from the United States. Um, obviously, you know, a, a big bombing campaign and then and then the inclusion of ground troops. Um, the Iraqi force is pretty overwhelmed quickly, but as sort of history uh, unfolds, um, that it becomes a protracted conflict. The United States, I think, officially is there for close to nine years, um, unofficially has troop presence um, well beyond that as um, different kind of uh, forces that are not sort of the Iraqi National Army um, kind of coalesce to to kind of repel um, the the, the forces that are sort of standing up the new Iraqi government. So a similar story in some sense to what happens in Afghanistan um, that you have <clears throat> essentially, uh, you know, an overthrow of Saddam Hussein and, and his, the Ba'athist party that, that was ruling Iraq. Uh, you, we do have some elections, but of course, like the new government can't really get a footing because there are all these like factions that are fighting. There's, civil unrest between um, Shui, uh, Shia and Sunni um, sects of, uh, of, of Islam, as well as like other uh, factions within the country. Um, so we have the Kurds in one area and, and there's, there's basically a lot of once the, once Saddam Hussein is removed, there's this like giant power vacuum and, and the U S is kind of left to sort of try and piece together a government that's going to last. I think over that period of time, like casualty numbers are very hard to come by uh, any kind of official report, but somewhere between 200,000 to upwards of a million people died in Iraq. Over 3 million were displaced. You know, you've got tons, billions of dollars of damage to infrastructure, historical treasures. Iraq is a, a very, very old country. Oh, I mean, the existence of the country maybe not that old but people have lived in that area for a long long period of time um all sort of ostensibly because there was you know a a, a very loose connection between Iraq and al-Qaeda that maybe may or may not have existed and then of course this idea that Iraq possessed weapons of mass destruction whether chemical or nuclear um, that was going to pose a threat to U.S. the U.S. and its allies um, as kind of this pretense of war. So I kind of went all over the place. I think I'm going to leave it there for for some of the historical piece. I actually maybe I'll add one thing. It was um, a, a resolution from Congress and the Senate that that did sort of authorize President Bush to take action in Iraq. So in October of 2002. Prior to that war, I, I went back and looked up the numbers. Um, the House passed this Iraq resolution 296 to 133, and then it passed the Senate 77 to 23. So obviously some bipartisan support, although not kind of a unanimous decision um, that would then kind of authorize this action um, uh, less than six months later. I am interested first and foremost to hear your your recollections of that time we were obviously still pretty young 14 15 years old um and i remember a lot of different aspects of what was going on um but curious kind of 
where uh, where this event, particularly the start of the invasion, are on your like in in your memory. We were young, and we'll probably get into this a little bit more later, but I think it's a mark of how much the world has changed in the last 20 years. And Ricky, I've told you this on the podcast, off the podcast many times, that in the last 10 years of teaching middle school, one of the most striking things is how aware of the world kids are. Like they, it's, it, they, they've grown up in a different world than us, largely, though not exclusively, because of what happened in 9-11 and in the aftermath of it. But I, I was not nearly as aware of what was happening. I think one of my main memories actually from this period of time is I used to listen to the radio like as I was like going to bed and while I was sleeping. And now I listen to podcasts, which is like how, how the world has changed in, in 20 years. But I remember I used to listen to like sports talk radio and just whatever, you just kind of like mindless and fall asleep. But those nights they played like the invasion of Iraq on the radio. Like there was like, I remember like falling asleep or waking up to like fire. You know what I mean? Like, like people like dropping bombs and planes and, uh, and guns. And I was just like, this is, it was, it was hard for me to really comprehend because in some ways it was a world away. And in some ways this is the first war of my lifetime where and especially as again as as technology continues to evolve it's like it's it was being broadcast and it was it's you didn't have to wait for necessarily the newspaper the next day although you know that those still very much like existed but you could kind of follow along as it was happening and so that's one of those things that like weirdly sticks out in my mind of like it being played on sports talk radio as we were like you know shocking shocking awe as you said like dropping bombs all over Baghdad and I guess I will say that you mentioned the votes in Congress, which, while not unanimous in the same way that the original um, AUMF, the authorization of use of military force that we've talked about um, in relation to the war in Afghanistan, was almost unanimous. Was unanimous in the Senate, less less unanimous. But like I, I too went back and looked at it, and seventy seven senators voted for it, including Senators Biden, Clinton, Kerry, Schumer. And that's not to second guess it because I don't think anyone knew the extent of like what we were going to do there, which is probably a problem in itself. Uh, But I do remember there being largely widespread support for this because that I think the way it was presented was that like Saddam Hussein's a bad guy, right? And like this is kind of good for everyone, America, a force for good. And this is also really the start of the Bush doctrine, which is like, we're going to preemptive strikes. We're going to hit first before we get hit. And I think coming out of September 11th, when we got hit kind of out of nowhere, there was like, yeah, all right, let's get them before they get us. And like that feeling of, and now I mean, like even, you know who I associate with that time, Ricky? Toby Keith, what he came out with, uh, like courtesy of the red, white, and blue. It's like, we'll put a a boot in your ass. That's the American way. (laughs) I think that's a, his album was called Shocking Y'all. Man. <laughs> Which like isn't isn't like maybe super funny, but I there was that kind of sentiment that I was soaking up of like, good, let, let's go get these bad guys. Yeah. I think that that's I think that that is sort of like very spot on for how the war was portrayed here in the US. So like I I have obviously a little bit of a different experience. My dad has like long been involved in various like anti-war efforts. Like he was, you know, he was there railing against Vietnam uh, with, with a few of his, that's like how he made many of his like longest lifelong friends. It's like through these kind of political action things that, but the, the start of that war and sort of the days leading up to the invasion was maybe my first foray into like, yeah exactly getting this like window into the fact that like there are things that go on besides beyond like the four walls of my school and in in my house um my dad took me to like this anti-war rally and i didn't really know what was going on um which to your point like 15 year olds today far more clued into what what is happening in the world um and i remember 
we were like, I think marching probably to the, to the Boston Capitol and um, to, basically to Beacon Hill and thinking that like, uh, this is kind of a long walk, but like, you know, there were a lot of people, I, I think I either had, was holding a sign that somebody made for me or somebody I was marching next to had this sign that said no blood for oil and just a lot of screaming, like no justice, no peace and all this stuff. And it was like, it was a really interesting introduction into this kind of political activism because so much of what I was like, so much of what I was just kind of coming across, like anecdotally was very much like, no, this is the right thing to do. Saddam Hussein is a bad guy. He could have these weapons of mass destruction, which like, like you said, preemptive strike. Um, it, it was very much like a, oh, people don't all like universally think the same way about this issue, but it was very, uh, so that was like, that was, you know, one piece of it for me. And then, then the other part was, you know, CNN would be on, it would be that black grainy picture of just like white kind of flashing off in the distance. And that's, you know, their cameras are set up wherever the American, like, you know, mortar lines are, and they're just launching missile attacks. And, and like you said, the, the bombs over Baghdad, and it was very um, surreal in a way that it just like, I didn't like, clearly, you know, what's going on, but you don't piece together that this is a city like, un, not unlike several other cities that exist all over the world. And there are people that live in these places. And it was, yeah, it was very um, interesting. And I think maybe the last piece that I'll add is that there was, because I remember we've talked about September 11th as one of those things that really unified um, a lot of the, there was like a lot of patriotism out of September 11th. And I remember when I talked about this, that like, yes, there was, but there was also then, this other undercurrent of xenophobia and you've, you know, as a Brown person in the United States, it was also a little bit weird for me. And particularly the Iraq war was one of those things that I remember sort of like probably more or less because my dad was against it. I'm like, all right, whatever my dad does, that's kind of what I'm doing also Um, that, that there was this idea that, Hey, if you're not, on our side, there was kind of like a, mm, maybe you don't belong here and maybe you could kind of go back to where you came from, where, where they, they're not going to be bothered by this kind of thing. That was, I remember having that feeling and I don't know, it definitely wasn't something that I would feel from our friends and our classmates, but I, re- I, I do remember whether it was like people talking on the, on the news about whether or not it's sort of your patriotic duty to, to support this kind of act, even if you don't agree with it or not. But I remember this is really where, like, I feel like, okay, now I have to come to terms with like, if I'm going to be for something or against something, I have to understand why. And I can't, I'm not, I'm not there yet. I don't know enough yet. So it was, yeah, I mean, definitely something that I will, that I continue to reflect upon that I didn't really understand, but is in many ways, kind of seminal to how I start to view the world, particularly like U.S. foreign policy. Well, that's kind of a cool story. It's yeah. like, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the birth of what you've become and evolved and built off for the last 20 years. That, that's that's really interesting. And credit to you and your dad for for being involved and doing that. But I will say like on on kind of the other side of things, I I definitely felt that and while i've tried to guard against that in myself i do think in the last 20 years there's been this line of you're either for us or against us and like you're either you're either in support of america and its troops or you're not and get out of here and and i think that's true for maybe anybody who's like that but it's particularly true and maybe particularly dangerous for non-white people to to do that because if when you're already by a certain segment of this population viewed as like an outsider or potentially not quite as American as, as, you know, white, white Christians in in this country, then when you are not outwardly supporting government decisions or 
again, I don't think really any anti-war people are against American troops. They're against what the troops are being directed to do by the government, but then portrayed as why you don't support the troops, (laughs) Um, which is, I do think there's very much become like an us versus them mentality. And I'm quite sure that that was not new post September 11th, but I do think that that is something that has grown in the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So there, I I want to come back. So I'm sorry. I just wanted to come back to one other thing you said is that, you know, when I'm listening to it on the radio or we're watching it on TV, it, like I said, it, it feels real, but it also doesn't feel real. Like it still feels a little bit like war games because it's, it's so far away. It just does like, I understand, like, it's just a weird thing, like mentally, where like, I understand that it's happening, but it's impossible for me to really comprehend what it's like to have bombs dropped on your city or have like, guns fired or to be hiding in your basement because you don't know what's going to happen in your building. Like, I don't, you know, knock on wood, I've been lucky enough never to have experienced stuff like that. And I do think there was maybe an element, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that it was kind of like a little bit of war games amongst some members of the Bush administration and certainly wouldn't be the first administration in United States history to do that, where it's like, hey, our objective is to take out, again, quote unquote, this bad guy. But like, what about the people? And what you end up with, as you correctly noted, is hundreds of thousands of Iraqi deaths, almost all of whom were civilians. And I was reading an interesting article um, by a French Iraqi who was just writing about his reflections about how Iraq changed in 20 years. And he was pretty much saying like, look, life under Saddam Hussein was not good in a lot of ways. Like people, there was no dissent. People were jailed. There was not a lot of freedom, not certainly not freedom of speech or freedom of the press or like all of these, all of these, what we would say like natural rights or rights that uh, we believe that all people should have. He was like, but there was a sense of stability there was a sense that we were all Iraqis and why we didn't necessarily like our government, our lives day to day, we could go to school, we could go to work. And even if you were a Sunni or a Shia or a Kurd or, uh, you know, an immigrant, there was, there was a shared sense of community. And he was like, the Iraq war changed all of that for us. And this was even I was going back and looking in 2007, I saw this New York Times article that President or then Senator Biden was pretty much advocating for like the soft partition of Iraq into a Sunni section, a Shia section, a Kurdish section. And it's like stuff like that. And again, this is I'm just trying to point to like this was across the spectrum of people just being like, hey, let's just divide up the country without really caring or like President Bush administration being like, all right, well, we'll just have you know a Sunni led coalition that will have you know, 40% of the government and the Shia uh, will have this percentage and the Kurdish will have this percentage. And the the journalist was reflecting, he was like, that wasn't like it before. Like we never decided that like this part of the religion needed to have X number of seats in our Senate. And that made us very sectarian in a way that we weren't before when we were, life wasn't necessarily great, but we were all Iraqis going through things together. He was like, I, he said, I imagine that's how it was under like Stalin in Russia. Like, it's dangerous, but you kind of knew what you were were getting. And there's, there's some value in that. And all of these things, I don't think if they were thought about, were not thought about enough. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is that like interesting, like hallmark of these brutal dictatorships in that there is some element of, yeah, even if what we think of as kind of our basic human human rights or rights as as citizens um are not afforded to everybody there is that sense of like well at least we know the rules and and um and yeah like we can make a living we can feed our families uh we can turn on you know taps and get running water and we have electricity and and stuff that you know quite frankly isn't available in in all parts of the world and <clears throat> that Partition conversation is really interesting because I hadn't heard of it before. Um, it really just reminds me of kind of how <laughs> the, you know, post-colonial British were really yeah, trying to exactly. deal with a lot of things. It's like, 
I will, we'll, we'll just like on the way out, we'll just like, you know, draw some lines and, and draw some lines. Yeah. yeah. Let them figure that'll, it out. that'll definitely work. Like the Kashmir region uh, between India and Pakistan. And, and uh, we'll, we'll tell you otherwise that that is not how it works, but act, but interestingly, so like India has the second largest Muslim population in the world behind, I think like Indonesia or something. But after partition, there was this huge, like like cross border migration because all of a sudden India is now this you know pseudo Hindu country. It's getting I think like at some point we'll have to talk about what's happening there um, as well because it it is veering a lot more religious than was ever originally intended. But then you also had these the two Muslim well at one point one Muslim country East and West Pakistan now two Muslim countries between Pakistan and Bangladesh, but like before people lived on both sides of those you know proverbial borders uh without really thinking much of yeah where you know where am i living is this india or is this pakistan like it was more or less one place um obviously with differences between them in in terms of who's in the majority and who's in the minority but under the british Kind of one, like, you know, we have us, we, we have somebody that we can blame for all our problems and that's, and we're unified in that. Now, all of a sudden you take that out and now we have to sort of fight each other. And that's, you know, so much of the history of the world is like that. And it, it is, it is really interesting. I did want to um, ask you a question uh, about something that I came across that I had never heard of before. Have you heard of the Iraq Liberation Act? 98, maybe? 1998. And it was also like a very big part of the Republican Party platform in in 2000. So this is pre 9-11 that like Saddam Hussein has to go. So obviously like post post the first Gulf War. But in 1998, there's a resolution called the Iraq Liberation Act, which pretty much similarly like sails through um, as far as I understand, Congress and the Senate. And and that is, you know, when when we were on the brink of war, all that I remember hearing about from Bush and Rumsfeld at the time was like, he's got these weapons of mass destruction. We can't be safe while this guy has them. He's used chemical weapons on Iraqis before, on the kind of Kurdish minority um so this is like this is the justification for war but it was really interesting to see that there was it was like you know a, a problem in ser- or a solution in search of a problem um leading into into 2003 so like all of a sudden you've got what happened on 9/11 and now it's like okay a how do we frame Iraq now as this terrorist state that is basically equivalent to al-qaeda who came here and launched an attack on american soil and then b how do we make it so that yes to justify it and 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 i brought this up before but i'm thinking a lot about this now because you know following the invasion of iraq there were several i mean obviously you'll remember the freedom fries that there were several countries that were like "Hmm, i don't know if this is the right thing to do i don't think you're justified in doing this of course you're the united states kind of big bad guys on the block like there's really nothing that we're gonna do about it like we're not sending troops to iraq to defend them but uh mm, i don't know if this is this is kosher under like how we've decided that sort of the new world order should be and obviously thinking about that a lot in terms of what's happening right now in Ukraine. Absolutely, and two things on that point. One, again, credit to you because this is something you brought up many times over the course of the couple of years we've been doing this podcast. Is that whenever everyone on both parties seem to be in agreement on something, there needs to be more people being like we need to step back and see if we're, we're, we're seeing all angles here, because as you said, the 98 um, Iraq liberation act that happens obviously under president Clinton 
and is passed, I think, as you said, like unanimously in the Senate. And then President Bush uses that like you to to enforce regime change, which is was, I think, the stated policy of the, the Liberation Act was yeah. like the, the policy of the United States should be regime change. Uh, and. Yeah, it's just it does feel in some ways, like you've said, where like as because I've been so anti-Russian what they're doing in Ukraine, but it's like in this case, like we we were kind of Russian. <laughs> like, do we can we can you say something like that? <laughs> like, uh, it, because yeah, and I I know that the UK, to its credit, did a I think it was maybe fifteen years on, so maybe five years ago they they set up a commission to examine the United Nation the the United Kingdom's role in the war in Iraq, and pretty much said that it violated like United Nations protocols and standards and that all peaceful options weren't exhausted and obviously tony blair ended up resigning in on while he was wildly unpopular in 2007 largely because of the iraq war we know that as president bush towards the end of his tenure was wildly unpopular largely because of this and so yeah i mean i guess in that sense it's like a good argument for trying to use the united nations and trying to like go about it in what we hope was the new world order. It also, I think in some ways is it benefits like, or, or supports what the United States is trying to do in the support of Ukraine, but it's very much just on the opposite side at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder if like part of it is though, like looking back into what, what would we have needed to stop us from doing what we did? in in just like some in some kind of like perverse like trying to uh, trying to rationalize if like if we try and put our motivations onto russia which is very hard to do because obviously putin is but it's a- not ricky like now that i'm thinking it's not that different right like russia's motivation is that like we look we think ukraine is going to be putting weapons on our border and potentially threatening us so obviously that's different than a country that's half the world away but our rationale is pretty much like their weapons of mass destruction could harm United States citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, and and if we play that game out further, like, yeah, what do we need? What, what would we have needed? And what, what do we, what does Russia need from Ukraine yeah. to get out of it? I mean, cause the, the other scary part is that, you know, Iraq officially lasted eight, nine years unofficially, like, yeah. you know, 12, 12 to 15 Mainly because, yeah, once you succeed in overthrowing a government, then you create actually like way more chaos. We learned that, should have learned that basically everywhere that we've done this kind of stuff, but certainly no more evident, you know, when we were talking with Colin about Afghanistan, like this idea that that you can just create this democracy out of nothing and and that everybody you know all these freedom loving people will come out and and can't wait to you know hold hands and sing kumbaya and it does just uh, doesn't quite work like that and obviously i think russia is fit is learning that um sadly the the hard way and at the expense of so many um innocent people um but yeah I, yeah these parallels are they're they're rather uncanny. I I think that the scary the other scary part to me though was that this agenda of regime change was almost very clear from the or like you know had had been years in the making right predated nine eleven and yet when we actually went to to war I don't remember anyone being like, well, we've been looking for a reason to do this for a long time. And now I think we got it. It was very much like, no, 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 this is a, an imminent security threat. We have to do this now. Um, almost apart from any other pre stated policy. And that idea that government has this ability to almost manipulate the narrative in support of what they want to do is is definitely frightening or am i am i over conspiracy theorizing this i don't think that's a conspiracy theory i think it's it's true and it speaks to like the importance of fair and impartial journalism which i don't think in the last 20 years has improved 
one one last thing I wanted to bring up on this was now that I've been reflecting on like the 20 year anniversary for the past week in general and in preparation for this, it's crazy how much that we have forgotten about this. Like we we've we've talked far more in about Afghanistan and it's been far more, I think, in my conscience and in like the collective conscience of of the United States because we we've been there. Like we were still there up through last year, right? And there so there were still pieces of news that were coming out. It was still like in the discourse. But because we've, you know, theoretically been out of Iraq for 12 years now, even though we know that we haven't, it's it seems like you said that's something that's all, almost already been relegated to a footnote. But it's not for Iraq. Like Iraq is still dealing with everything that they're they're reaping what we sowed there. And or this article had said like the biggest winner of the Iraq war was Iran. That Iran and Iraq were huge rivals for a long time, and that maybe wasn't great for middle east stability but it also there was like this kind of tension between them in a good way where like no one wanted to go too far because like they were going to be kept in place like there was the iran iraq had a big war in the late 70s early 80s and what iran, iran just like took advantage of the vacuum like the power vacuum in iraq and has sowed more discord in one of its rivals uh, in their rivals not only uh because of geographical reasons but religious reasons as well but that was kind of sobering for me where I was like, damn, I have kind of forgotten this while people in Iraq have had to deal with this and have grown up in a country that was far different than the one their parents grew up in largely because of what the United States did there. Yeah. Yeah. These second order impacts that are very hard to like forecast, but in some sense we're, so it was it just felt so glossed over that um that once you do this kind of thing and, and destabilize a country that it's not just like those borders at, you know the imagined borders right like that, that they don't really mean anything except for that this is how we as like a world have have like are managing civilization across the planet through through these through these lines that divide divide countries and not understanding that exactly as you said that there that yes you know you may have certain that countries may have certain feelings against the US but those aren't in a vacuum and they have to deal with their neighbors and they have to deal with all these other pieces and that trying to change one of them cannot be done independently from everything else that's going on around it Yep. There's just, uh, I don't know what's it like the, the butterfly effect. That's what I was looking for is that you just don't know. And while, as I said, multiple times, I don't think enough consideration was given to all of the potential butterfly effects that was going to come from our regime change policy in Iraq. You would hope that one of the lessons that we would have taken away is that to give more thought to the potential outcomes before it. And I guess that's right. Unfortunately, that's really all you can do. Like all you can do is look back and admit that we made one many mistakes and that we will hopefully not make those same mistakes in the future. One would, one would hope. All right. Maybe we'll leave, we'll leave that there. Um, Definitely for folks who are listening to this, curious what your reflections are. Uh, Obviously a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, how old you were when, when this, when this happened and, and how plugged in you were. Um, but yeah, get at us on Instagram and, uh, and, and whatnot. We'd love to, love, would love to hear, uh, what you're thinking. But when we come back, we got two more topics to touch on quickly and, uh, we'll see you in a minute. So the news came out on Sunday, broadcast by former President Trump himself on his Truth Social app, that he was preparing to be arrested by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office this week. While it's not surprising in some sense, because the former president hasn't been embroiled in numerous legal contests for most of his life, but especially since 
he has left office here, this is a, a huge deal. And originally we thought that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. And it hasn't happened as of this recording Thursday morning, but it, it is still expected to happen at some point. And it's it's unprecedented. Like like so much of President Trump's you know, rise to power, time in power, post-term has been. But maybe it goes without saying that no former president of the United States has ever been arrested before. And I'll briefly go through this case because it's it, it's a particularly interesting case President Trump has been like Teflon Don for, again, like his entire life, and especially so when he's been at the top of American politics, where he's had so many allegations, both like legal and ethical against him, and everything just seems to bounce off of him, not only like in the criminal justice system, where he hasn't faced any severe consequences, even as so many others around him have faced pretty severe consequences, but also politically, where he just seems to grow stronger from all of these, quote unquote, like slings and arrows that are that are shot at him. But this case stems from the 2016 payment that he made to um, adult film star Stormy Daniels, which was allegedly a hush fund payment, a hush payment because of an alleged affair that she and the president had back in, in the early 2000s while President Trump was married. This was in the lead up to the 2016 election. And President Trump allegedly paid her $130,000 to not spread the story. So it's it's not great, Ricky. Uh, it's like, I don't think anyone's out there being like, that sounds like a really ethical, moral thing to do. But I don't know how many people out there think that President Trump is a moral or ethical guy. The question really becomes, like, legally, how big of a deal is this? And it's... It's could be a, a misdemeanor with like uh with some false financial reports that President Trump allegedly filed, but obviously like he's not filing those himself. But it would be elevated to a felony if he also committed a campaign finance violation. Because if he if the the argument from the Manhattan District Attorney's office, who the Manhattan District Attorney is uh, Alvin Bragg, their argument is essentially that this was a campaign. Uh, expenditure because he was using it on behalf and service of his campaign. He didn't report this $130,000, a, a violation of campaign finance is a felony. And so that's, that, that would be the charge. It seems from everything I've read from all like the legal analysis, this isn't an impossible to prove charge, but it is pretty like de novo. We would say it's, it's a pretty like new charge. This isn't something you see very often. And so the chances of success in this case are not, it's not a slam dunk case. And I think that's what has made it so interesting is that president Trump is currently under investigation for, uh, for his attempts in Georgia to overturn the 2020 election for his attempts at fomenting like an insurrection around January 6th from his attempts to conceal former classified documents in his Mar-a-Lago house. So like these are all the the three top of my head, pretty serious investigations that he's under. And that the fact that this is the first, I think a lot of people are worried. And I think a lot of people that are running those investigations are worried because the classic prosecutor line is you need to win the first case, because if you don't win the first case, it just emboldens the defendant even more. And particularly in the case of someone like president Trump, who's just going to get up there and say, look, there are these radical progressive Democrats who are, using the criminal justice system for partisan purposes. They, they're not even stopping. They're letting criminals walk all over New York City trying to prosecute me. And look, they can't even do it. Again, just like the Russia, just like no collusion, just like Miller report. Right? And what it does, it just strengthens, strengthens him. So, but again, so I don't really understand what the district attorney's office is doing. I think from the Republican conservative side of things, everyone seems to be like, they just want the mugshot. And that's going to be an insane mugshot. There's a there's a bar in Boston called the Liberty Hotel, which used to be the jail, which is why it's called that. It has a bunch of famous mugshots up there. So it's like I don't know, Frank Sinatra and Lindsay Lohan and stuff like some famous people that are up there with their mugshots. Like having the former president up there with a mugshot is it's insane to even really think about. But this doesn't seem like a great idea to me, Ricky, either legally or politically. Yeah. No, this is, I couldn't agree more. I don't know that I have much to add. I think like the 
this whole it 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 like reeks almost of like Al Capone where you know about all these bad things that he's done you can't like prove any of them or some of them are potentially maybe not illegal and so you're going after him for tax evasion it's it's just like yeah and then throw in sort of the political dumpster fire that this whole situation is which is basically that half the country is still sort of on his side and so he gets to be a martyr in this and it doesn't almost matter what he did or didn't do because yeah, he can just cry out that this is like a partisan witch hunt, blah, blah, blah. Um, the, it was one, it, it's almost like one of those things where like, if, if you can't get him for sort of inciting an insurrection, which you have him doing on television right before you have a televised insurrection, then, then like the best thing that you can do is, hope that he goes away and this is just you know giving oxygen to the fire kind of thing like in in many circles people were like well he can't win re-election so like you know we're ready to jump ship and this is exactly what he needs a to get more airtime and then b to get those people who want him they're like to see him as a victim of this grand conspiracy of I mean, call it liberal, but really just like call it the mainstream, lamestream media, whatever. It's just such an it's such a nightmare. And yeah, I mean, like the sad part is I do. I feel like I do uh, at least I, I can't fully dismiss the argument that like, hey, we have a lot of other problems. Like, why are we like actually actively spending significant amount of resources media air coverage like all this shit on this like hush money to some porn star like i i don't care and it's so dumb yes it is all that but it's it's also like hugely consequential because of all the reasons that you said where it's tricky for me ricky because as i've talked about even with the january 6th commission which i was like more in favor of i believe than than you were where i was like look we have to have the rule of law like everyone has to be held to the same standard if you break the law i don't care who you are like we need to bring charges if we're going to bring charges against you or me we got to bring charges against anybody else so like there's part of me that's like that but there's part of me that when when trump says if if I did if Trump he'll use himself in the third person if Trump decided that he wasn't going to run for office again all these charges would go away. I don't think he's wrong. Like like if if he was if he had just said like I'm done never going to run for political office again I think all these charges go away. And so in that sense like I'm torn between like he did a lot of things that are like probably not legal. I'm not this this case aside again why seven years later. Look at all of the crime problems in Manhattan. This, like, to your point, this is what we're using our resources on. Seems like nonsensical to me. So I want to hold him accountable for all of the things he did that potentially broke the law. But also, it it when to his credit, he's like ceded the 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 ground for political persecution and witch hunts. And this just seems like another one. So it's it's like feeding that that narrative. And look, all of the all of his rivals. Like Pence had finally come out and said that like Trump was wrong on January 6th. Like he put my family in danger and I'll never forgive him for that. And DeSantis has been out there like being the clear anti-Trump candidate. And then when they're asked about this, what are they going to do? They're going to rally around him because, and I understand why. And so, like, it, it just galvanizes everyone back around him. And it just, I, in some sense, Ricky, you don't, I don't want the law taking in like political things, right? Like if someone broke the law, doesn't matter prosecute them it doesn't matter like the political consequences to it but come on man (laughs) yeah yeah and i feel like there is something to like like you said like it it, maybe instead of doing these all in piecemeal especially with this one which is such like a fringe like of all the things you know the election interference to me maybe is like the the strongest the scariest thing that he should be held accountable for. And that case needed to be made first, not this one that was effectively already out there and already like in the court of public opinion, everyone has already decided whether or not they care about this 130 K to to Stormy Daniels. So to relitigate that is kind of, is, is not smart 
when you have this other thing and, and it's exactly what you said like if this doesn't go right then all of a sudden everything to come after it might as well be double jeopardy it's just like a now they're just doing this just to be spiteful and they don't have anything they never did kind of thing i couldn't i couldn't agree more good us all right uh one last topic that i wanted to talk about was the xi jinping visit to russia the first state visit to Russia since the invasion of Ukraine began a year ago. To me, this was really significant because just from a, a like global world order perspective, Ricky, we've talked about how China is, is rising as a, as a equal rival to the United States as, as a world superpower has been on really exponential growth over the past few decades, but that, that growth seems to be, accelerating even more in in the past couple of years, where even last week, China did what the United States could not have done, which was broker potential uh, detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia. There was no way the United States could do that because we just don't have a relationship with Iran. Here, Xi Jinping is going to Russia. From a cynical United States perspective, this is our two greatest rivals, potentially two greatest enemies getting together in, in an anti-US show of force of like, and I think that's Russia's perspective too, that Russia's like, hey, this is the new world order actually, and it's Russia and China and so many other countries in the world, whomever they want to bring in, Iran, North Korea, South Africa, Egypt, Brazil, uh, like, like, I mean, I'm any number of countries that is anti-US, anti-West. And so I think that's how Russia sees this. I think China, to their credit, is playing a phenomenal diplomatic game. Like not only have they done that in in the Middle East, but now they're going to Russia and they're coming to Russia with a peace plan. And while I don't like their peace plan and I don't think it's fair to Ukraine, no one else has a peace plan out there, Ricky. And Xi Jinping is the only one that's going to be able to say, look, I can go talk to Putin. I can do- go talk to Zelensky. No one else in the world can do that. Look at us. So it was really interesting to me because Vladimir Putin penned this like long letter that was distributed all across Russia about how this visit was significant for Russia because it shows that the United States is wrong, that Western Europe is wrong, that Russia and Putin, they're right in what they're doing in Ukraine. But I really think that China is playing a, a a much bigger, longer, more effective game here. Yeah, I I, uh, I hate to say it twice in that twice in ten minutes, but yeah, also could not agree more. I think I I think that that's exactly right. Like China, when it comes to foreign policy, thinks about their international like ec- economic interests. Like their their economic interests lie in basically maintaining as much as many markets to export their goods into and as many markets to import cheaper energy from that's going to include Russia every time Russia in, is based on its geographic location and its size right their airspace is massive so a lot of air airlines kind of go to and from across Russia and then their shipping channels are also important in terms of like how you are going to get your goods from your country to the rest of the world. So China is and under under Xi's leadership is very much concerned with how do we just preserve all of this like economic uh, yeah all of all of these things that sort of fuel our economic growth. And if it's making friends with Putin so be it we're going to do that and I think that the flip side of the coin is our recent isolationist streak. Like when we talk about inflation and I like I I feel like I cannot stress this enough. It is like there is no way to reduce our dependency on foreign goods and also reduce our costs. Like we just can't do that. That is how we grew is by depending on other markets to make things more cheaply than we could. And now when we're going and particularly China, right? Like a huge chunk of our goods still say made in China. When we want to pull back from those things and we want to send a message to Russia by sanctioning them, we have to understand that we also pay the price, like literal cost for that in the fact that we can no longer get like 
in the fact that we're reducing the global energy supply, which increases our cost, doesn't matter how much we produce domestically, if it's very expensive in Europe, that's what's like our our same side of the coin, right? We're going to see the price pressures on, on, on us as well. And this intersection between what's going on in foreign politics and how that's playing out domestically for our economy, for inflation, for all those things is for some reason is not being talked about at all. Not to say that economic reasons mean that you should kind of kowtow to dictators for, for anything, but you do have like, it's, it's just like we were talking about, like these things just don't happen independently. They all have these second order impacts. And I think China is more creatively or adeptly like navigating this situation than we are. And of course, they're also like stepping into that, right? That power vacuum that we are leaving by saying, we're going to not kind of engage with these people. We're not going to do it. And they're like, sure, we will. And that's going to open up things for them that, that may have been, I don't know. It, it is, I I think like in terms of pivotal turning points where where for so long it's we've almost taken for granted that like people look to us to make these decisions to make connections between countries that had been uh hesitant to do that i think china's really seeing an opportunity to 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 yeah to build up their clout and that potentially should be scary to us because they don't have the same values that we do um and so it's like you you have two options you can either say you know we don't negotiate with terrorists and that's that's all well and good but if it doesn't sort of deal with the problem then they'll then they may find another negotiating partner and that is enough you know but it has its own challenges Yeah, it's it's I don't think this is an easy situation because on the one hand, like the United States has taken a side and in my opinion, it's the right side. It's it's you know, it's when you take there's something to be said for taking a, a moral stand on things that you feel are unjust. China, from an amoral perspective, might might be able to advance themselves further in that in 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 their global standing. And so I, I do think that's a very tricky line. And that's definitely something as as we get into like the run-up to the 2024 presidential election, I'm going to be wanting to hear more about. I don't think that I will, but I would. I would like to. So, all right, I, I think I think that that is a great point, right? Like, there is something to be said for taking a moral stand, but the question is, like, what? And you know, I like when we were talking um, with Dan about this, like, you know, what is if we take this stand? What is the outcome, and what is the outcome that we are? looking for right like is it the peaceful is it some sort of peaceful resolution is it that putin is overthrown right like where i think how you take a moral stand is still important and i'm not sure that the stand that we're taking is going to get us get the the best result for ukraine in this situation and i think that that is important like it is easy to say to call out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy potentially in this situation, but okay, now what are you going to do about it? I think that, that like the response bears examining as well. Well, we'll keep an eye on all of these things uh, in the, in the next few weeks, but certainly a fairly momentous historic week in a lot of ways. Till next time. See you, buddy. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised, but 
what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old Main Street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics Trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days you leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head And folks with different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz